0: Sunday nights, we're currently studying through the book of Matthew, and we'll look to study chapters 8 and 9 this evening as a part of our service and Lord's Supper included. And this morning, we want to take a small section out of that larger section and to be able to elaborate a little more fully on it than we would be able to on Sunday nights. If you're with us tonight, this morning, and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just flag them. They'll get one into your hands. It'll be marked already to the passage that we're studying for your convenience. And then please, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. And make a good friend of it. You won't regret it. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. He's a tax collector. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, Matthew threw a feast for Jesus, celebrating his becoming a disciple of Jesus, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, when he heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he quotes from Hosea. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for how it Reveals to us Jesus. We know that the volume of the book testifies of him. And we ask in just the beautiful way and in the simple way that you do by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to see Jesus here and to understand what's really happening in this passage. And then, Lord, that you would do whatever is needed to our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength to conform us into his image, not to the setting that he was in 2,000 years ago, but into the setting that you have called us to be the body of Christ in, in the year 2015. We pray for that work of your spirit. We expect it, Lord. We ask for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage records Jesus' call of a tax collector by the name of Matthew. He is known interchangeably in the Gospels by two names, by both Levi and also by Matthew. This Matthew that Jesus calls upon to follow him is ultimately going to become one of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles. He is going to ultimately also become the author of the very gospel that we're reading right now by the Holy Spirit, the gospel of Matthew. We're told in the passage that he is a tax collector, and there is a lot that is bound up in that description of him as a tax collector. In those days, tax collectors were almost universally despised. I, I don't doubt that tax collectors in general are probably Uh, never greatly beloved uh, throughout history or anywhere uh, in the world. No one particularly uh, is excited about paying taxes, and then we tend to take uh, that particular distasteful thing sometimes and then uh, personalize it to the person whose responsibility is to do that. And so uh, people who are employed for that purpose sometimes become you know, the objects of our distaste. I could be wrong, but I suppose that the average person who works for the IRS, when they're asked at a family barbecue or a barbecue or a party or something, who they work for or what they do, um, they might just find another name uh, to describe the IRS because who knows what kind of discussion will ultimately, you know, pour out of that. But tax collectors in, G- in, in is. Israel, though in those days, were largely despised for good reasons, and uh, some of the reasons include that in those days, like today, they taxed just about anything that lived. Anything that a person owned was taxed. Anything that moved was taxed. Anything that was sold was taxed. They had a poll tax that was extracted from every man aged 14 to 65 years old and every woman from the age of 12 to 65 simply for the privilege of living. There was also an income tax. If you were a farmer, you had to pay 10% of all the grain you grew. If you were a farmer who was involved in the production of wine or oil, your tax was 20%. There were taxes and duties charged for the transportation of goods, for the selling of goods, for the use of the main roads, for the use of the harbors, for the use of the markets. You were taxed not only on any cart you used to transport goods, but you were taxed on each wheel. You were taxed on the number of animals that drew that cart there were special taxes on items that were imported or exported and on and on and on it went And I think it's very important to realize that these taxes were not Jewish taxes they weren't going into the pockets of the to support the government of Israel at that time these were Roman taxes and thus they were for Rome to uh, fill the treasuries of Rome because Israel like much of the ancient world at that time was simply a province of the larger Roman Empire. And so Rome's method of tax collecting among the countries that it occupied was an interesting one. They would take a particular region within their empire and they would take and look for a native within that province or region that they could then sell to them the right to be the tax collector. And by virtue of buying that right to be the tax collector, you guaranteed Rome that you would raise at least this amount of money per year to deliver to Rome. And so that's the way that it was set up. And sometimes it was so desirable to become a tax collector, certainly of more um, affluent regions of the Roman Empire, there could even be a bidding war that would go on to be able to collect the taxes. And so they would uh, lease that out, that position for a fixed sum of money and the man was then obligated to pay that amount to rome annually and then here's the catch whatever he could exact from his fellow citizens above that would then be his that was his income you could hardly develop a system that would more readily produce uh, corruption than the one that rome did because the more dishonest you were the more cold-hearted you were towards your fellow citizens, the more money you could make. And so, in general, it attracted the world's worst kind of person. Now, in fairness to Matthew, we must mention that to be a tax collector in that day was not a sin, uh, not a sin at all in and of itself. Uh, The tax collectors came to John the Baptist when he was preaching a message of repentance uh, to them. And they said to John the Baptist, What should we do? What does repentance look like in terms of what you're declaring to us? What shall we do, teacher? And John the Baptist said to them, collect no more than what is appointed to you. In other words, do your job, but do it honestly. Additionally, we do not know that Matthew was actually defrauding people at all, but what we do know at the very least is he did not seem to have even the slightest problem with identifying with this profession, and not the slightest problem with identifying with a profession that was known for dishonesty and was universally hated. Now, how the Jews viewed the Jewish tax collectors was uh, even more strong than the general population. Uh, In the land of Israel, they despised tax collectors, especially because... In a tax collector hired by Rome from a local province, here you had Jews hired by Rome to tax their fellow Jews and then to gouge them and to defraud them. And as a result, within the land of Israel, they were viewed as traitors who were assisting Rome in her oppression and occupation of Israel. And for the Jew, this was more than just a moral or an ethical issue to them. It was a religious one. So if a Jewish, even if a Jewish tax collector was honest, he would still be viewed by his fellow citizens and despised by them for taking advantage of his own people at a vulnerable time within their history. This was treason to the Jew. This was unforgivable to them. In the mind of the Jew, tax collectors were classed together with robbers and murderers and prostitutes. A tax collector was barred from the synagogue on the basis of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 5, where God's law declared, Then I will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut him off from his people. And then here it is. And all who prostitute themselves uh, with him to commit harlotry with Molech. And in the minds of the Jews, just as the prostitutes threw away All of their dignity and godly character for the sake of money, so did the tax collectors. They were disbarred and disqualified as a judge. They could not be a witness in a court of law. And in the eyes of his fellow Jews, he was a disgrace, not only to his own family, but he was a disgrace to all Jews in general. And what's fascinating to me concerning all of this is that in the face of all of that when Matthew became a tax collector he didn't flinch he didn't blink at any of that at all none of it constrained him this was just an easy way to make a lot of money just as long as you didn't care what people thought about you and Matthew did not care about what people thought about him and he especially was unconcerned with what Religious people thought of him. And Jesus comes to this Matthew and commands to Matthew, follow me. And he calls him right from his tax table near the city of Capernaum while he's engaged in this hated activity. And Levi's response, Matthew's response, verse 28, he arose up from his seat. He left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus. Now, don't think in your mind that this is the very first time that Levi has had contact with Jesus or this is the first time he's been, um, you know, heard about him or been influenced by him in some kind of a way. This event took place near the city of Capernaum, and when Jesus began his public ministry, having left Nazareth, He then made his hometown, Capernaum. He made made that his new hometown. It was the center for his public ministry. And here here is Matthew, and he is collecting taxes in the vicinity of Capernaum. And so like everybody else in that whole region all around Capernaum, Matthew knew all about Jesus. He knew all about his teaching. He knew all about his miracles and his fame. I mean, everybody knew about Jesus. To just mention his name was to attract a crowd at that time in history. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Matthew is called by two different names in the Gospels, but they each refer to the same person. Sometimes he's referred to as Matthew. Sometimes he is referred to as Levi. Most likely, he was known as Levi prior to becoming a disciple of Jesus and then becoming known as Matthew subsequently. And the name Matthew means gift of God. It's a beautiful name and a beautiful meaning. Levi's name was a name that was steeped in Jewish history. It was the name of one of the twelve sons of Jacob, who was one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, and thus. The name Levi was one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe of Israel. Aaron, the first high priest of the nation of Israel, Moses' brother, he came from the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. The entire tribe of Levi was set aside by God for holy service unto him at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. And his name, Levi, probably, it reveals that he was probably of a priestly family and trained in his youth for the priesthood. He was probably raised in a religious home by godly parents who named him Levi in the hope that one day he would become a priest and that was their greatest desire for his life. And then imagine, here he's gone in the exact opposite direction of his parents' godly intent for his life, and he ends up this dreaded, despised, shameful tax collector. And we ask ourselves, how in the world did that happen? It's interesting to notice in reading Matthew's Gospel that 99 times he quotes from the Old Testament. In other words, Matthew knew his Bible very, very well. And he had learned it somewhere, and he had not learned it as a tax collector. And over and over again, he speaks of the Scriptures being fulfilled by Jesus. In other words, he not only knows the Bible, he knows the implications of the Bible. He knows the themes of the Bibles. He knows what these verses speak of in and how the implications concerning Jesus as the Messiah, but also concerning life. All of these things had been given considerable thought by him. He uses the words hypocrisy and hypocrite and hypocrites in his gospel, not only more than any other book in the Bible, but more than all of the rest of the New Testament all put together. And I don't think that it is inconceivable that when Matthew came to Jerusalem from home as a young boy or a young man to begin his service at the temple there, that when he saw the hypocrisy and the greed and the covetousness of the Jewish religious leaders at the time, he just shut down and he checked out. And it was almost as if he thought, if this life is all about power and hypocrisy and making money and stealing money, then I'm not going to be a hypocrite about it. I'm going to go, I'm not going to hide behind religion to do it. I'll go out and be an out and out honest thief. I'll do it openly as a tax collector. And so he did. And then one day, clear up in the north of Israel, the city of Capernaum, just about as far as you can get away from Jerusalem and still be in the land of Israel, Galilee, of the Gentiles, he hears Jesus, and he sees Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, he saw in him everything he knew God was like from the scriptures that he knew so well. And when he heard Jesus, he knew he was hearing someone rightly divide the Word of God for no other reason than to honor God, not for money, not for power. And as he watched Jesus' life, he recognized him as the Messiah based upon the Old Testament Scriptures that he knew so well, and he thinks to himself at last, now that's someone worth living for. That's someone worth following. And what Jesus did in Matthew's life was to knock every excuse for not living for God out of his hands. And I'm convinced that no one was happier to have that happen in their life than Levi. Perhaps there's one or two of us in this room today whose history includes something like Levi's experience, where you were exposed to the corruption or the hypocrisy of some religion, or perhaps the corruption or the hypocrisy of your own Christian home growing up. You said, I want nothing to do with it. I'm going to run as far away from it as I possibly can. And yet Jesus won't let you loose in bringing you to realize that who he is is something that is entirely different and wonderfully perfect and can never be represented by anyone else. And then he's calling you today to become his follower and do a better job of being his follower than maybe others did in your life. Jesus, or or Levi, he demonstrated his excitement now over becoming one of Jesus' disciples by throwing a great feast for Jesus and for all of his friends. You know how sometimes it is with your your friends. Um, He knew he couldn't get them to come to a Bible study. These are the most notorious sinners in Israel. But they'll come to a feast. And he wants them to meet the one that he has now left everything now to follow. And so he invites Jesus to come and attend this celebration meal Wonder of wonders, Jesus attended the meal. You've got sinners now coming into contact with Jesus. And everybody is happy, happy, happy. And so the passage ends. But that's not how it ends. It's almost where the instruction begins related to the passage. Because there's one group there that isn't happy at all. A group known as the Pharisees. And you notice their complaint in verse 11 the complaint that they lay out there is they ask Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? And the implication is that holy people, people that are serious about God, people that are serious about holiness, don't associate with these kind of people, and they don't associate with these kind of people out in public. And Jesus' response to their protest is... Fascinating and very instructive in verses 12 and 13. Jesus did not go to this feast. He did not go to this party in order to be cool. But to be a spiritual influence in their lives by getting close enough to them to let them see how different his life was from theirs. And then also to speak to them about sin and salvation and becoming one of his disciples as well. But at the same time, Jesus realized that in order to do that, you have to get close enough to them in order for them to hear. And he uses a physician as an illustration. That is, when a doctor enters into a sick room, they don't go there because they love sickness. They don't go there because they love disease. They enter into the room because they know they have the potential to heal the patient by doing so. And in the same way Jesus attended this feast, not because he loved the sickness of their sin and, and the sickness of their spiritual and moral condition uh, of those that were at the feast. He went because he knew that he had the potential to heal them by doing so. But just as the doctor has to get close to the patient in order to share the diagnosis and the cure with them, the Savior has to get close to sinners to share the diagnosis and the cure with them. And that's why he went to the feast. Where would a physician be but among the sick? And where would you hope to find a Savior except around sinners? And Matthew couldn't invite a single sinner to meet Jesus at that feast who was so bad that Jesus would be unwilling to meet him and to save him. And neither can we. And Jesus spoke something profound to the Pharisees from their own scriptures, a passage they had evidently overlooked in their study. And That's why he said, have you never read? And he quotes from the book of Hosea. And in quoting from Hosea 6.6, what he was teaching them to learn from that passage is that it, that to ha- in the eyes of God to have mercy on sinners to have mercy on sinners is more pleasing to God than the most expensive sacrifice we will ever offer to Him without a heart of mercy towards sinners. Let me close our time with a few applications here that I think are important to uh, allow impact our hearts and will we do provide an ongoing dialogue in our heart between us and the Holy Spirit individually, but I think also some lively and important discussion in the home fellowships that you attend. Clearly, from this passage, we see that Jesus' ideas concerning separation and holiness, as it relates to sinners, and the Pharisees' ideas concerning separation and holiness regarding sinners, Two entirely different attitudes. Two entirely different attitudes. And it speaks as much to us today as ever it did in, in those days. Sometimes we will hear people say, and sometimes we will find ourselves saying it, um, in the world that we live in, saying something like, this world is sick. This is a sick world. This world is sick the fact of the matter is, it's is true. It's always been an observation concerning the world. And Jesus is telling us that as much as that in this passage. This is a morally and spiritually sick world that we live in. But that it will never get better if we adopt the attitude of the Pharisees and decide that the highest expression of love for holiness is to disengage from sinners and to disengage from The world. You're aware, I think, as all of us are, as Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're aware as much as I am that the world that we live in is in a spiritual and a moral decline, not just in the United States of America, but around the world. There's a very serious decline going on before our eyes. You and I live in Corinth. The Bible is going to become more real to us than it has ever been in all of our Christian lives because of the hour that God has called us as Christians to represent Him and serve Him. Corinth was a horrible place, morally and spiritually, a very needy place, and it is the world that we live in. It is the nation that we live in. And without a revival, it's only going to get worse, as the prophetic scriptures concerning the end times clearly lay out. So in the light of this truth, a truth that we all recognize The two great temptations that we face concerning all of this is, number one, to capitulate, to surrender to the culture, to abandon the standard of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, the standard of God's Word to now accommodate this new age. The great temptation is to now go along to get along. And that's a tremendous pressure that's being exerted, not only upon churches and the body of Christ as a whole, but being exerted upon individual Christians as well in the complexity of their life. The second temptation that we face is to turn inward as the church, as the body of Christ in this community and around the world, to cease to engage the culture and determine everything is lost. The best we can do is just build higher and thicker walls between us and them and then just hold on to the rapture. But if we do that, we run the risk of very rapidly becoming marginalized and then very quickly ignored and then ultimately forgotten by the culture around us. And as we look at this passage that's before us this morning, Jesus shows us that there is another way There is a way of true holiness in the environment we're trying to navigate for his glory today. And always remember that Jesus is the definition of holiness. No one ever lived a holier life than the life that Jesus lived. Now let me make a few uh, observations, again in germ form, that I'll allow you to develop on your own between you and the Lord, or again at that home fellowship that you you attend or with some other group of people number 1 we cannot expect christians non-christians rather to act like christians we cannot expect in our lives non-christians to act like christians because they can't and they can't any more than we could before we became christians it's an obvious truth but it never ceases to do something good in my heart when I hear it. Second, we need to remember that Jesus loves sinners. He loves sinners, and he wants them to be saved. And he knows that usually somebody has to get close enough to a sinner in order for that to happen. Third, it's important as we see Jesus in this scene that we are not, as Christians, stiff and uptight when we are around non-Christians or sinners. Now, I'm not talking about uh, meeting with sinners or whatever in a sinful environment. We can't go into sinful environments. But in a non-sinful environment, but like the one that's being described here, sometimes we find ourselves in non-sinful environments and as Christians, we the most uptight people in the whole group. And you look at this, Jesus is completely relaxed here in who He is, the power of the Holy Spirit, in His calling and what He's going to do. And He joins in that feast. And obviously, these people are very comfortable with Him as well. It's so important not to have ourselves settle into a place in our lives as Christians where we are uncomfortable being around sinners. And it's very important to notice in the passage that Jesus was not uncomfortable around sinners but the Pharisees were. And it says something to my own heart. I have a Pharisee in me. I have a big Pharisee in me. Uh, All of us have a Pharisee in us to one degree or another. As one man said to me, he, he's, when he first started coming to the church and he met with a few men, he said, be patient with me. He said, <laughs> um, he said, I'm a recovering Pharisee. So this isn't something that we're not familiar with. Jesus was comfortable around sinners, and they were comfortable with him. But a Pharisee isn't, and it's a great contrast in the passage. Another thing that we can learn here is... Don't think that befriending a sinner is compromise. It isn't. Sin is compromise, but befriending a sinner is not compromise in any way. One of the things that happens to us as Christians over time, and it's an observation that many, many people have made, is as soon as we become a Christian, um, we get immersed into this new culture, into this new kingdom is a better way to put it, the body of Christ. And here are all these new friends and these new wonderful people and the interaction begins to happen. And pretty soon we find ourselves jettisoning all of the old friends and relationships within our life. And I do recognize that certain relationships do have to go um, when we become a new Christian for a, a variety of reasons. But so often we end up within a very short period of time ending up with no other friends or no other relationships Um, friendships outside of the body of christ are the christians and so then the only people the only christians who are still coming into contact with non-christians in the world and inviting them to church or developing enough of a relationship with them to share the gospel are christians who are two years or younger in the lord and it's a cycle that's worth observing one of the great things is about how patient God is with us. I did this very thing in my own life as a new Christian. All of these new friends, they're so great, and Christian service and all these things to step out into. And, and all of my friends went by the wayside as I began to move into these other things. And some of them did need to go, but not all of them. And one of the beautiful things that happens is, is we grow in the Lord and we grow in Jesus' example here in the passage is sometimes the Lord then begins to prompt our heart to reestablish some of those relationships once again to be an influence in their lives. Now, recently, a friend of mine, he, we played together on the junior college basketball team at Napa Valley College, and a wonderful man, but he was one of those relationships that I went off on to other things. And then recently our lives began to come back together and had a great interest in spiritual things and was wondering how to handle things in his life and very quickly gave his life to the Lord. But it came, you have these things in your own life. It comes out of relationship and it comes out of friendship. Uh, Neighbor across the street uh, to me, great guy. And, you know, it's like I could have, the first time I met him, I could have got him in a headlock and shared the gospel with him and said, I'm going to dig out one of your eyes unless you become a Christian right this minute. But sometimes there's those things where it happens immediately like that and then other times where you're just saying, Lord, there's a timing here for this. There's a timing here for this. And then one day I was talking with him one evening out in, in the front yard and things began to move toward a spiritual... We had developed a friendship had moved into a spiritual kind of side of things. And I said... Would you mind if I shared a few things with you? Um, They're spiritual in nature here. And he said, you can share anything you want with me. It comes out of the relationship, comes out of the friendship. But with sinners, with people that don't know the Lord just yet. I think another thing that's important for us to realize is that we need to be careful not to operate out of fear in this regard concerning separation or false holiness and so often we can begin to respond to the world the sinful world sinners in the world and we're driven as christians by fear we're driven by a fear for ourselves we are driven by a fear very often uh, concerning our own uh, children and especially as they grow toward adulthood The world that our children and our grandchildren are growing up in is one in which there is, at this point in time, virtually no escape from the world and from the sins of the world. We cannot build a Christian subculture that is big enough to protect them. It is impossible to do in the current climate of the Western world. We used to be able to do that, I think, Whether it was biblical or not, I'm not going to get into all of that. But we used to be able to do that to some degree in the United States of America and get away with it because of our Judeo-Christian foundation. But those days are long over now, barring a revival in the United States. And what is needed now is we must become ourselves and then to disciple our children into being a Christian who can stand in any environment that we and they find themselves in, in this world. We are going to need to learn about and I think to depend upon the Holy Spirit in a way that we haven't even, as American Christians, begun to scratch the surface. No matter how much I know about the Holy Spirit, No matter how much I've experienced the Holy Spirit, no matter how much I believe in the fullness of the things of the Holy Spirit, we're in a season we're going to go into a place of depth in terms of experientially our understanding of the Holy Spirit and dependence upon Him that we could have never dreamed of because it's the need of the hour. The baptism with the Holy Spirit for us as Christians is not an order That we can leave the holiness and the protectiveness of our home. And we want our homes to be holy and to be protected. But the baptism with the Holy Spirit isn't given to us as Christians. So that we can live within that context. And then have the power to make a quick trip to the store and back without being defiled by the world. That's not what the Holy Spirit is given for. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power. And the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It is the power to live for Christ and to be like Christ in any environment that he would put us in, in this world. And that's what Christianity is. Christianity and Christians are not this weak, fragile thing that we have to be afraid of. It is a powerful, powerful thing. And I think that every one of us as Christians, we're going to need to receive this power, to walk in it. It is our only hope. It won't be in walls. It will be in the person, and the power of the Holy Spirit and in His Word. And to look at the world that we live in and to think of retreating or just kind of holding on, that really is, and I want to say it, I want to say it diplomatically, but I want to say it powerfully. For me as a Christian, to have the idea of my Christianity is to look at the world and to think about retreating or just holding on, that is an affront to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. It means I'm just beginning, I haven't even begun to scratch the surface about what He supplies to us and wants to do in me and to do through me. And all of this change that's occurring, it's occurring in your life as well, my life as well, and much more change to come in this hour in human history. And all this change is good in the sense that it's going to force us to live the fullness of the Christianity that is described in the Bible, not the American Christianity that we think sometimes is Christianity, but it isn't really Christianity. And our Judeo-Christian heritage has protected us from having to grow in areas in our life that Christians in other parts of the world have been forced to grow in. Now, we will grow in those things too, and it will be a very 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 good thing but sometimes we have to be forced to do that to examine our Christianity in the light of the Word of God because only the Christianity that is described in this Bible is up for our moment in human history to not merely survive this time in history but to be used by God to make the most of the opportunity that is before us as well. This false separation of the Pharisees, complete with all of its legalism and all of its man-made traditions, it gives the appearance of being the ultimate expression of seriousness about holiness. This shows that I'm really serious about holiness. I'm really serious about separation When in fact, it is actually a confession of weakness. You have to artificially protect what you know is weak. And they were artificially protecting their understanding of the scriptures. We artificially protect what we recognize to be weak. When you go to Greece, it is against the law in Greece to proselytize. Or to preach the gospel to another person and invite them to know Christ. You'll end up getting arrested for doing that. At least historically, that's been the case in recent modern history. Where did that law come from? Who pressured that through the government? And it was the Greek Orthodox Church in Greece. In order to protect its power, in order to protect itself from born-again Christianity. And it was a confession that they couldn't compete with it, so they outlawed it, a confession of their own weakness. If you go to Israel today and you go up on the Temple Mount, which is under uh, Muslim control, when we go there and take trips as pilgrims there, all Christians have to leave their Bibles in a bag. You can't bring a Bible up on to the Temple Mount. You can't... Not, not only can you not read it, can you not uh, study it, can you not uh, preach from it, you can't even bring a Bible up onto the Temple Mount. Only the Quran is allowed. Is that a testimony to the robust strength of their holy book? Mm-mm. It's a confession of its weakness. You artificially protect what you know to be weak. And Christianity does not need artificial protection because true Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not weak and it is not fragile. And true Christians and biblical Christians are not weak and we are not fragile. It's strong and very robust in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice, too, that Jesus' life and his example here forces us to learn about grace toward people in a way that we wouldn't otherwise do. And God is teaching so many of us about this issue of grace toward one another and grace toward the lost and grace toward the people who now are where we once used to be in life And it's important in this passage, in the privacy of your own heart between you and God, that's a safe place to sort things out with God. But to put ourselves, our deep, deep inside self that we know ourselves to be, into this passage, and some of us might discover Wonderfully so, and importantly so, that we are more like the Pharisees than we are like Jesus in how we view the lost, and in how we view sinners. And that's an important light to go on in our lives, and that's one of the great points of the passage Be a friend of sinners. That's what they called Jesus. A friend of sinners. The friend of sinners. The religious leaders called him that. We think about it and he is is our hero for that title. But they used it dismissively toward him. It was a degrading thing that they felt they were saying toward him. But he wore it as a badge of honor. Lost sinners are not the enemy. They are the harvest field. Just like we were. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, this is quite a passage you have included in your book. And for some of your children who stand before you, this is all a very, very settled issue in their life. But then, Lord, there's others of us for whom this is a great struggle. And I pray and we pray for one another that the beauty of the truth, the freedom of the truth, the fruitfulness of the truth that is found in the example of our Savior would have its full work in each and every one of our lives. And we ask that you would take us by the hand And that you would continue this conversation in each one of our lives, Lord, until we find ourselves in the place of our Savior in these very environments. And we ask that you would do it for our good, Lord. We know that to live like Christ is the free life. It is the full life. It is the blessed life. But we also ask that you would do this for the sake of so many who have yet to hear, and that you would do it for your glory. May the conversation begin and continue, Lord, in that wonderful privacy of how you do it by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for our Savior. We love everything about him. We want to be like him in every way. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is working us toward that end. Thank you for how far you've brought us. Continue to bring us all the way there until our final breath in this life. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.